our good and gracious Father, as we gaze upon your cross, upon the incomparable sacrifice of your goodness and your grace, when we're faced with a love that is so amazing, so divine, that it demands of us our whole lives. Holy Spirit, impress upon us the cost of this discipleship and shape our lives by the purpose of this good God. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen. We are continuing our journey in our series of messages entitled, Because I Believe. We're trying to connect the dots between the so what of our faith, what we declare and what we do, from what we say we believe to what we really believe, which is revealed by the way that we live. And so we've been using as a roadmap for this, the journey of that great ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed. And we've been following week by week the implications of what it is that we say that we believe. And so we've been going back and forth with this, because I believe, I will. And so today I thought we would kick off today's message by having you rise to your feet and joining me in these words on the screen. I'll do the part that says, because I believe, if you'll respond with the I will statements. I think you'll catch on in a little bit. Because I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I will cherish life as a gift. Because I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, I will give priority and loyalty to Jesus. Because I believe He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, I will be available for God to surprise me. Because I believe He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, I will live for more than comfort, security, and status. Because I believe He descended into hell, I will go the distance for others. Because I believe on the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father, I will trust that God is in control. Because I believe from then he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, I will be ready to make every moment count. Because I believe in the Holy Spirit, I will partner with God each day. Because I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, I will not walk alone. Because I believe in the forgiveness of sins, I will not carry drudges. And because I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, I will not give up. Amen. And you may be seated. In 2011, quarterback Aaron Rodgers was on top of the football world. With the footwork of a ballet dancer and the arm of a cannon, Aaron Rodgers had an MVP caliber season and had an unbelievable road and journey towards the Super Bowl championship and the Lombardi Trophy. And so they completed the great uh, Super Bowl defeat and experienced all of the glory that starts to set in in a moment like this. And so they celebrated in the stadium and then the team began to celebrate in the locker room and the team continued that great celebration all the way into the bus. They're riding in the bus away from the stadium. Aaron Rodgers reflected that they're passing the Lombardi trophy from one to another around their heads, around the top of the bus, when all of a sudden this little 
dark ache crept into Aaron Rodgers' soul. In the midst of that celebration, with the trophy lifted above their heads on the bus, Aaron Rodgers said, this came to mind. He said this, I hope I don't just do this. Imagine all the training, imagine all of the effort, all the work, all of the coaching, all of the praying, all of the effort that led to this moment of triumph. And in that moment, what does he think? He thinks there's got to be more. Have you ever felt that way before? Not the whole Super Bowl victory part. I mean, <laughs> the whole part about that maybe you've realized a dream, maybe you've accomplished a goal, maybe you've checked something significant off your list, or maybe you've climbed to the top of kind of a mountain of success in your own kind of little world, and when you got to that top, you said, is this all that there really is? There's gotta be more. Stephen Covey works with a lot of executives, a lot of CEOs, a lot of leaders in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sector and government officials. And he says that one of the things that he's learned about all these people that climb the ladder of success, and he writes this, he says, if the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. And so what I'd like to do today is to make sure that we've got the ladder of faith leaned up against the right kind of life. And so if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a significant moment in the life of Jesus. And while you're turning there, I think one of the remarkable things about Jesus is not only did he come to give us life, he also came to show us what this life was really for. In this moment in the journey of the way that Matthew unfolds the drama of the gospel and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is a story that comes right on the heels of the baptism of Jesus. And so we have here Jesus who, uh, like the skies rip open and the favor of God descends like a dove from on high. Here is God's son. Here is the king. Here is the Messiah. And the question is, what is Jesus going to do with all of that blessing, all of that favor from God? What's he going to do next? Is he going to march on Jerusalem and kick the Romans out? Is he going to go all the way to Rome itself and dismantle the evils of the Roman Empire? No, that's not what Jesus is about to do. In a moment of solitude and silence, he begins a 40-day journey into the wilderness, facing alone what we would care to avoid. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that I am not Pastor Joel Osteen's publicist this week. (laughs) This has been kind of a rough week where he has gone viral in all of the wrong kinds of ways. I mean, imagine this. He's the pastor of the largest church in America in the midst of this city that's going through a crisis. And at first he addresses the crisis with little platitudes from Twitter saying, don't worry, God's got this, or don't let the doubt and the waters of doubt get above your head. Then it's, you know, hey, the church is not open because you can't get to the church because of the flood water, but we find out that that's not true. And then it's like, well, we didn't open the doors of the church because the city didn't ask for help. This has not been a good week for Pastor Joel Osteen. There's lots of things flying around the internet comparing him to the Noah who wouldn't let the animals in the ark or the innkeeper who told Mary and Joseph that there was no room in the inn. Now, there's a couple of things that are unfair and a couple of things that are fair about this criticism. The things that are unfair uh, to me are very clear. When we go through moments of crises like this, we're always looking for someone to blame. And so Joel Osteen as a televangelist is an easy target for kind of the public shaming and the self-righteousness. And as your pastor, I just can't condone getting on that bandwagon. But there is a part of the criticism that is absolutely fair because it is in a moment like this that it exposes what we really believe about God and it exposes in this moment the shallowness and the weakness of what is proclaimed in that church and in many other congregations across the United States. What is often referred to as prosperity gospel or success gospel or health and wealth gospel or name it and claim it gospel. Basically that you can call down prosperity and material blessings from heaven if you pray and do the right things. Let's be absolutely clear when the floodwaters rise to a certain level, that gospel washes away. Ross Douthat puts it this way, while Orthodox Christianity suggests that evil is a mystery to be endured, the prosperity gospel suggests that evil is something that can be mastered through a combination of spiritual exertion and the divine intervention it summons up. 
If you fail to master everyday events and fall into struggles and suffering, it's a sign that you just haven't prayed hard enough or trusted faithfully enough or thought big enough. The book, Your Best Life Now, isn't going to help you in the moments when the floodwaters come rushing at you. Little aphorisms of catchy slogans and phrases aren't going to help you in moments when you're confronted with this kind of real and widespread suffering. We believe as followers of Jesus and we proclaim in the creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And when we say this, we are saying something incredibly radical. We are saying that God suffers with us, that God suffers for us. What we are declaring is is that Jesus, our God, will not take a shortcut around the cross. That he will not seek a life that avoids the discomfort of pain and suffering. Jesus does not take a detour around the wilderness. No, like Moses who has gone before him, he will enter into the wilderness. Like King David before him, he will enter into the wilderness. Like the prophet Elijah, he will enter into the wilderness. And where God's people failed in the wilderness, Jesus will triumph. It is critical for us to have a faith that is robust enough to incorporate the suffering of this world in those moments where we have to, whether we like it or not, go through those moments of wilderness trial. What do we learn from Jesus in the midst of his wilderness test? We learn a couple of things. Let's just walk through them quickly together. First of all, in the first test where he is asked to turn stone into bread, it is a test of comfort. Will Jesus use his power to satisfy and to, to meet his own needs? But Jesus won't do that. The second part of the wilderness test is is where Jesus is taken to the very highest point of the temple and the devil tells him to throw himself off the temple for surely the angels will catch him in a spectacular fashion. Will Jesus use his blessing from God, his favor from God to protect himself from harm? No, he won't. It's in this moment that you see very clearly that Jesus will not steer around the cross. He will not use the blessing and the favor of God to save himself. In the third of the trials and the temptation, Jesus is taken to a mountaintop and all the splendor of all the glory of all the kingdoms of the world are laid before him. And he can have that. Remember at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. But Jesus can be given that without going through the cross. But Jesus will not bow down. Jesus will not worship the accuser. Jesus goes through the wilderness and suffers with us and for us. How about you? How do you do in the wilderness? 
Do you respond by feasting on the word of God as Jesus did? Or do you respond in those moments in other ways? There's a wilderness area up in the mountains of Wyoming that had one of those comment cards, uh, one of those places where you could fill out a little kind of survey, make some suggestions of how to make things better. And apparently a park ranger over the years accumulated some of the more interesting ones and compiled them together and published them. And this is what some people said about living in the wilderness. Number one, the coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. Number two, trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. (laughs) Number three, a small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? Please contact me at... Number four, a McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. Actually, that's not a bad idea. Number five, the places, I love this one, the places where trails do not exist are not well marked. (laughs) You just got to stop and think about that one for a little bit. And lastly, there are too many rocks in the mountains. No, but there's too many rocks in your head. And we can laugh at these because they are ridiculous, but if you could open up our soul and see our secret comments to God, would they be any less ridiculous? God, I don't have anything to wear. God, please let me make diamond status this year with my favorite airline. God, if I only had a little more. God, I'm so busy. God, I'll help that person as long as I don't have to go out of my way. God, I'll do the right thing as long as it doesn't interfere with the advancement of my career. God, help me to look good in the eyes of others. Our wilderness journey is filled with complaints. Our wilderness journey is filled with wanting to serve ourselves. And yet what we learn from Jesus and his mission and the way that he lived, not just that he came to give us life, but he came to show us how this life was really meant to be lived, what it was really for. Jesus says it most succinctly when he says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. That that's what it's all about. In other words, True success, true satisfaction, true joy is not found in having all of our needs met. It's not in having all of our desires fulfilled or our wishes granted. What life is for, it's about giving ourselves away in self-sacrificial and life-generating love. We've seen so many examples of that this last week. One of those examples happened at a Chick-fil-A. Don't know if you saw the story of a store manager by the name of Jeffrey Urban in Houston area. The store was closed because of the hurricane and 
Jeffrey came to check on the store to make sure that everything was okay, to see if they had power, to see what their supplies were like, to things that needed to happen with inventory in order to be able to open up in a day, a couple of days to assess the damage. The owner specifically said, hey, whatever you do, corporate said, don't answer the phone because you don't want to confuse people that you're open and Jeffrey was gonna be the only one there. It's not like he could do anything about the needs of customers. But the phone was ringing again and again, and one time he glanced over at the caller ID while the phone was ringing, and he noticed that it was JC and Karen who were calling. They were regulars. They were senior adults, or what we like to refer to at Peachtree as grand adults. And so because he knew them, and he knew them well, and wanting to make sure that they were okay, Jeffrey answered the phone. And sure enough, JC was on the other line and he said that he would love nothing more than to order his favorite daily chicken and biscuits, which is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. (laughs) And he said he'd like to also have with that order a boat, if at all possible, because (laughs) the waters were flooding their home. Well, a couple of hours later, because Jeffrey called Cindy the owner and Cindy's husband had a boat and a jet ski. A couple hours later, they showed up at JC and Karen's home with a jet ski rescue and a number two special. (laughs) Showing up where it really counted because we live for more. There's a young man by the name of Eric who he and his family's house was completely flooded. And I want to show you a video here while we talk about this of him getting to his house, assessing the damage from being away. And with the water, you know, three or four feet high, him sitting down at this room that's completely flooded and taking a moment to take it all in and to play music in the midst of the flood. It's a captivating moment, right? But what really captivated me was not just this poignant video. It was what he posted when somebody grabbed this video and put it on Instagram, what he said with it. I think it's all finally sinking in a little. What we used to have going is the city is gone. I really think God is going to do something completely new here. I'm excited to see the new beauty in the suffering, not just the alleviation of the suffering, but beauty in the midst of the suffering. And then quoting in his post, a long passage from Romans chapter eight, most of the chapter, and this is part of what he quoted, not just a phrase here or there. He said, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we eagerly wait for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope 
we were saved. Does this sound like prosperity gospel to you? That we, even those who experience the first fruits of God's glory and power, we join the creation in a fallen world with the tears and the groaning of that not all things are well, but we trust that God is working to renew all things. And then here's a picture of Colette and her little girl, Jordan. Jordan's three years old in Beaumont, Texas. They were fleeing the floodwaters in Colette's car. And finally, the floodwaters would not allow them to go any further, that their car was no longer of any use to them. So they got out of the car and began to set out on foot They tried to stay close to the car, but the waters swept them away into one of the canals. A half a mile later, with a mom desperately trying to keep her three-year-old daughter above the surface of the waves and out of the current, some first responders saw the pink backpack that little Jordan had on her back. And when they got there, they noticed that Jordan had hyperthermia already and that her mom, that her mom didn't make it. The New York Times put it like this. But even as she succumbed to the floodwaters, She never let go of her daughter. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down your life for a friend. Little Jordan's middle name is Grace, Jordan Grace. And she will forever be marked by the life-giving, self-sacrificial love of a faithful parent. And so, no, we don't believe in a gospel of success. We believe in a gospel where the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer His life in exchange for ours. Your middle name, my middle name, is Grace. Because of what God has done for us, because He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so we believe that Jesus suffered, that He was crucified, and that He died, but that His death was not in vain. And maybe you've come to church a bunch and maybe you've heard this over and over again and to you it feels like a formula. I'm here to tell you it's not. That Jesus came to give you life and he came 
to show you what that life is for. And so stop trying to climb the ladder with it leaned up against the wrong building. And I promise you that no matter how hard you strive, no matter how feverishly you work, and no matter how high of a mountain you get to the top of, that you, like Aaron Rodgers, when you get to that moment of your highest and greatest achievement, when you get there, if it's without the gospel, if it's without God, if it's without grace, what you will experience is, I hope I live for more than this. And so let's not take pop shots at an easy target like Joel Osteen. Instead, let's realize that the fault line of a shallow theology often exists within each of us. Jesus suffers with us. He suffers for us. And so we don't complain our way through the wilderness. We walk faithfully by his power out of self-sacrificial love. Let's pray together. Loving God and Father, I confess that we all live for comfort and status and security when you have called us to live for more. I pray that you will give us a vision, Father, to be able to experience the fullness of your gospel, that great rescuing mission that shows up in the midst of a surprise. Thank you, God, for beauty in the midst of the suffering, for music even in the midst of the pain. And I thank you, God, most of all for your sacrifice, for your willingness to die so that we might live. Help us, God, not to squander the great stewardship of what you have done for us. Help us to lean the ladder of our lives up against the building that is the cross. And that we might join you in serving and giving life away. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.